Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Virginia Johnson, the artistic director of the Dance Theater of Harlem. Virginia joined the Dance Theater of Harlem in 1969 as one of its founding members, danced with the company for 28 years, and took on this new role in 2009. Today, we talk about the difference between managing male and female dancers, the pressure to create a sustainable ballet company, and dance's pipeline problem. Thanks so much for being here, Virginia. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So as artistic director, what are you in charge of? So um, in an organization like Dance Theatre of Harlem that actually has a three-part mission, that uh, we have a touring company that does performances. We have a school, a training school, where we teach young people the art of ballet, whether they're going to be dancers or doctors. And we also have uh, an arts education program that engages community and uses the art as a tool to uh, connect young people to the world. Uh, So as the artistic director of these three parts, it's me, my job to give a vision of what Dance Theatre of Harlem is saying in the world, uh, how Dance Theatre of Harlem is different from other organizations, arts organizations, and how Dance Theatre of Harlem defines the art form of ballet for the 21st century. So those are big things. What is the vision and how do you define? Ah, of course you would ask that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think that one of the things that's powerful about dance is that it it is a, um, it doesn't have a language like English or French, but it has a language of the body. It has a language of the spirit. And so one of the things that happens with with ballet, um, and that's a very big area that I want to try to unpack, is that it lifts the spirit and engages people and enables them to understand their higher selves. Um, it It uses a very formal language to do that, and it has a way of um, looking very specifically antique. And I think one of the things that Dance Theatre of Harlem has an opportunity to do is a way for people to understand that ballet can actually lift their spirits and carry them forward in the world in a way that's necessary when the world is full of confusion. How does that relate to sort of the original mission of Dance Theatre of Harlem? So Arthur Mitchell uh, founded Dance Theatre of Harlem in 1969 um, with uh, Carl Shook, who was a teacher in New York at the time. Uh, And he was inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King, who was assassinated in 1968. And, you know, anybody who was alive at that time period really felt the impact of Dr. King and felt the way that he was able to change the way people thought about many things, but thought about African-Americans and thought about our place in the world. And Arthur Mitchell wanted to understand how he could use his skills as a ballet dancer to make the kind of change in the world that Dr. King made. And so he opened a school in Harlem, and he wanted to give those young people who had been written off, the schools were failing, the housing was terrible, there was no future for these young people. He wanted to give them a different way to survive, a a different way to thrive. Uh, And he thought by teaching them a classical art form, he would give them life skills that would enable them to uh, to get out of the traps that they were in. And skills like focus and discipline, but most of all, perseverance. Because anybody who studied a classical art form understands that it's very well codified. There's a set of rules, there's a set of standards, there's a set of, of uh, procedures that you have to go through, and it takes a long time. So by teaching these young people classical ballet, he would give them the, the personal strength to endure criticism 
and understand what it is to set a goal and move through that process to become something other than where they were. And the classical ballet part of that is like the important part, right? Like it's not... Absolutely. It is, it is the structure of classical ballet that he wanted to impart for these young people. So uh, Dance Theatre Harlem started as a, a school for young people in the basement of a church in 1968. Um, but very shortly after that, he realized that these young people need to have something to aspire to, and they needed to have role models. They needed to have people that looked like them being successful in this art form. And so he created the Dance Theatre Harlem Company. And the idea with that was, yes, it's social change through art, but it's also changing the way that people thought about this art form of classical ballet. Because at the time that Arthur Mitchell was a star of New York City Ballet, blacks were pretty much excluded from classical ballet. They thought we didn't have the temperament. They didn't think we had the bodies. They didn't think we could understand it. Hmm. They didn't think we belonged in their precious art form. So Arthur Mitchell wanted people to understand it's access and opportunity. If you've got the talent, if you've got the perseverance, if you can build yourself into that kind of artist, and it takes time, then there should be no boundary on that. So there were two, two basic goals for Dance Theatre of Harlem. And that's one of the things that I want to continue to stress with Dance Theatre of Harlem now that we're 50 years old, that this art form belongs to everyone, and that art can transform lives and transform society. Do the challenges feel the same? The challenges, sadly, are very much the same because I think there's a perception of ballet as being this um, 19th century uh, classical art form that came from Europe um, and that you need to be uh, a certain kind of body and a certain kind of person and you need to be telling a certain kind of story in ballet um, for it to actually be ballet. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. Ballet is a language. You use it to tell many different kinds of stories. You use the magic of transformation. It's an art form that's about transformation to take what is known and expected and take you to a place that is unknown and unexpected and is thrilling because of that. Right now, I feel like we have a lot of ballet that's very well known. I want to see ballet that's unknown. Does that transformation happen for the dancer as well? Yes. Uh, transformation is a, an incredibly important part of, of, uh, of the dancer's life. You start as a very young person who aspires to be a ballerina. And you, you start in your um, maybe seven or eight, nine. And you, have, you learn all the rules. You learn all the steps. And you, and you try to start incorporating that in your body. Then in the middle of that period, your body goes through a big transformation adolescence where you go from being a child to being a woman and your body changes greatly and so you go through that period and you still are honed in on that process of making this ideal and then you come to the point where you are actually mastering something and you become you start to define what that art form is as it lives in your body and that is what is beautiful to me about ballet i think that we have a tendency right now to select people who look like ballerinas and think that they're going to bring magic to the stage. And to me, it is people who have the talent and the desire and the capacity to express in the language of ballet, who hone themselves into the ballerina. That's where the magic is. 
So I want to talk a little bit more about how you facilitate that process. But first, let's back up for a second and just tell me how you came to the Dance Theater of Harlem to begin with. So um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was very fortunate to um, uh, grow up in a, a very well-protected and, and uh, supportive community. My mother had a good friend who had opened a ballet school, and she wanted to support her. And so she sent my sister and myself to the school, and I, I, that was my first exposure to ballet. And I completely fell in love with it right from the beginning. It was just the most wonderful, magical thing you could do with yourself. Um, and so I studied with um, this woman's name is Theryl Smith, and she's 100, and she's still mm. teaching. Um, uh, I studied with her for many years, and then I heard uh, a, an advertisement for um, the Washington School of Ballet on the radio. And they said, uh, we're offering scholarships to anybody who wants to come. So I took myself over there, and I auditioned, and I got a scholarship to the Washington School of Ballet. Uh, and it was the best school in Washington. And I got excellent excellent training there. It was a very wonderful experience. I was there from the age of 13 to 18. Was it mostly white? It was all white. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no mostly. <laughs> it was all white. Yeah. You know, I didn't pay any attention to that because I was doing what I wanted to yeah. do. I was like, this is this is this is my dream. I didn't see ballet as a white art form. I saw it as my art form. So I was fortunate. I, I went to the Academy of the Washington School of Valley, and I graduated. And the day before the graduation, Mary Day, who was the director, brought me into her office, and she said, you know, Virginia, you're very talented. I know you're going to have a career, but you're never going to be a ballerina because you're black. Nobody's going to hire you. There are no black dancers in American ballet. Um, I was really grateful that she had waited till that moment to mm -hmm. say that to me because never in the five years that I was there had I had any sense of discouragement in her training. And so I think that she was just trying to be realistic. I think that she was puzzled that she saw this person who could do this but knew that there wasn't anything that was going to happen for me. So she wanted to let me know before I, I started encountering it in the wide world. Um, I had already been uh, accepted at NYU, uh, the School of the Arts, because my parents had no intention of being a ballet dancer. But I was uh, thinking that I needed to get to New York and see if I could find a way to do it. So I was already somewhat on the path. Um, Mary Day's words to me were shocking and disturbing and galvanizing because it just meant that I needed to find a way to do this. And I knew that there were more obstacles than anybody else had that was graduating with me that day. So I... Um, got to NYU, and I enjoyed the program. It was a modern dance program, and it was uh, a new world for me, and it was the village. It was the 60s. It was, I mean, it was, it was very, very interesting, very stimulating environment, but I really missed ballet. And uh, so somebody said to me that Arthur Mitchell was teaching ballet classes up in Harlem on Saturdays, and I should just go up there and get my ballet fix and come back down and do the real dancing and in the village, but... but uh, it was the thing that opened the door. I went up and uh, took class and found out he was starting a company. And um, after many long conversations with my parents, we agreed that I'd take a year leave of absence from NYU and uh, joined the company. And got paid? Uh, $50 a week. 
<laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about your um, your job now. How much of it is focused on the dance and the dancers, and how much is focused on money, fundraising, kind of the, being the public face of the company? Um, I would say that it is um, 75, 75, 75%. <laughs> um, I'm really fortunate that we have a, an incredibly strong executive director, Anna Glass, who uh, is doing a lot of that work of of stabilizing the organization and fundraising and organizing and connecting us to to things. So that I think for me, because she is so strong, I have a, a, an advantage. To be realistic, I would say 30% of my day is spent um, thinking about fundraising and uh, administrative opportunities and and. Uh, seeking out grants to, to keep us going. I want to say that it's 110% the artistic part, being in the studio, uh, being with the dancers, um, imagining what is possible for this organization artistically to change the way that people are understanding our art form. I don't have enough time in the studio. I don't have enough time with the dancers. And that's one of the things that really does hurt me because ballet is a very traditional art form. There's a way of doing things in ballet that I think needs to be a little bit disrupted. Uh, and that takes time and that takes personal input. What are the layers between you and the dancers? Like you, you were saying you wish that you could spend more time in the studio. You, it sounds like you have a, a very, um, you really have a, a strong sense of what you would like to convey, but you probably can't directly convey it all the time. So who who else is there that, that can do that for you? So um, so I, I am the artistic director, and I have um, two ballet masters um, who uh, are in the studio for m- most of the day, and they are the people who, they're the unsung heroes of ballet. They keep all the information about the ballets in their head, and they teach the steps to the dancers, and they understand what the the um, the organization of the, the ballet is, and they make that all that work happen. So they're in the studio with the knowledge of the specific work. Uh, and we also have teachers who come in to teach um, the company in the morning. I teach some of the company classes, um, and certainly on tour I teach as well. But one of the things that I'm trying to do to shake up that habit is to have a lot of different teachers teaching the company. The company doesn't really like that. They find it a little bit confusing. But I think it's very important for them to understand that there's not one way to do this. There are many ways. You are a mature artist who can take what you know and take what that teacher is telling you and put it together to make something happen. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to management. It sounds like the ballet masters are extremely important. So how do you make sure that they are carrying through your vision? At like a very sorry, at a very like kind of granular mm, level. Mm. So, so my advantage for the first these first um, eight years of the company, six years of the company, is that I'm working with people who I danced with. I know them very very well. Um, we were operating under Arthur Mitchell's vision for the entire formative part of our careers. So there's a there's a confluence of idea that has been very much part of building this company. Um, we're at a, a transition point. One of our ballet masters has, has recently left, and we're bringing in a new ballet master. And next year, we'll bring in another new ballet master. So that this is a kind of a changing of the guard. So it's going to be a much more tricky thing to understand, to make sure that people are um, 
understanding the dance theater of Harlem, culture and identity, and also understanding my adjustment of that as we move forward. It's an advantage. It's also a hazard. Uh, we have a transition period where uh, the two people that we're most interested in are working with the company over periods of time uh, during this year so that I can observe them and they can observe me and we can start to, to build this thing together. Because uh, one of the, the characteristics of a, a touring company is that you kind of live together because you're on the road all the time. So you've got to be able to um, understand the professional level of the work and how that gets accomplished and how to live together in these very close quarters on tour and be respectful of each other's aesthetic and experiences. Yeah. So take me from sort of start to finish of how you plan out a season. So um, one of the things that's that's uh, significant about Dance Theatre of Harlem is that we are a touring company. When I came back to the company in 2010 to be artistic director, the company was not in existence and it was necessary to imagine the new Dance Theatre of Harlem. In 2004, Dance Theatre of Harlem was experiencing some very severe financial difficulties, um, and it was looking like it was going to have to go out of business. And so the decision was made uh, in 2004 to put the touring company on hiatus uh, so that we could preserve the school, which is an important part of our existence in Harlem, and an important part of our idea of building new futures, uh, and our arts education program, which serves that same purpose. Uh, and the thought was that the, the company would go on hiatus for maybe a, a couple of months or maybe as much of a year, but it actually ended up being eight years. And in 2009, Arthur Mitchell called me up and he said, okay, uh, we're going to make some changes at Dance Theatre of Harlem. Um, I'm thinking of stepping down and I want you to be artistic director. And your job is to bring back the company. There are a lot of things I could say about this, but I'll just keep going. <laughs> um, so when I came back in 2010, knowing that that really Dance Theatre of Harlem was continuing to exist, but it had no public face. And so it was still in danger of going out of existence without a touring company. So I was charged with finding out how to make this company work again. Uh, and I worked very closely with the, the executive director at the time, Levine Naidu. And we had some wonderful consultants and some wonderful fin uh, foundation support. We spent two years really looking at what it meant to bring back the Dance Theatre of Harlem Touring Company. And one of the things that was necessary for us to imagine was, what's the right size for this company? In 2004, there were 53 dancers we toured the country with two semi-trailers with a beautiful sprung floor that was installed in every theater and sets and costumes and theater cases for the dancers. And it was, it was a very luxurious, deluxe, deluxe operation. Um, quite magnificent, really very thrilling. But that was then. This is post-2008. There's no way that we're going to have a company of 53 dancers. Uh, we had to figure out what was the right size of company that we could be sustainable. Through a lot of uh, research and, and, and conversation and cons consultation, we, d we ended up with a number of 18 dancers, which actually ended up being too many. And we had to, to rethink that as, as we move forward. Because the really important part of, is that Dance Theater Problem has to be able to tour. We do one season a year in New York, but we need to take this message of the power of art to transform, that ballet belongs to everyone, to everyone. 
And so we needed to be a company that could go to large cities, Chicago and Los Angeles and Atlanta and San Francisco, and also to very small cities, um, Des Moines, Grand Rapids and um, Columbus. And, you know, it's really two different faces to the kind of touring that we do. But it's important for us to be able to take this message to lots of places and for the message to be appropriate for the many places. So we have... Um, we have 17 dancers now, and uh, the repertoire is made up largely of new works because a great deal of the work that was done by the original company was much too large for, for this company to do. We can't do The Wonderful Firebird because it's a, a cast of 32. We can't do Creole Giselle, which is a, a cast of 48. We can't do uh, so many of the works that are were emblematic of Dance Theatre of Harlem. But what we're trying to do now is find ways to do um, productions that are larger than the 18-member, 17-member company that we have now that engage the communities that we're in. For instance, we were just in New Orleans, and we did Jeffrey Holder's Dougla, which is a magnificent work cre created for the company back in the 1970s. Very, very popular work. It's about a marriage between an African person and a Hindu person in Trinidad, and it's full of pageantry and beautiful costumes. We are doing Dougla in select cities where we can ship the costumes ahead, where we can tap local professional dancers to fill out the, the cast, which is 24. And so we'll be doing that in two cities uh, in addition to that on this tour this year. How is working with male and female dancers different? Mm. So, um, you know, in ballet, we always need more men. Uh, and the men are wonderful. But they can also be more demanding than the women because <laughs> there are so many women. Women tend to be more agreeable to make sure that they keep their job. <laughs> Uh, they're both incredibly valuable. You need both on the stage. And so uh, it can be challenging sometimes uh, because you want the men to be strong and to have that willfulness that is um, kind of the male ethos that you need that balance on the stage. But they've also got to follow the rules. The rules of the ballet or the rules of sort of being a decent member of a company? To be a team player. Yeah. Yeah, the, the ego thing. You've got to keep the egos aligned, and, and it can be quite tricky. Um, and it's also can be quite, quite tricky because they compete with each other in ways that are sometimes not useful. That um, if so-and-so got that, I need to have that, that kind of thing. And it's really kind of you have to constantly be keeping the focus on the work and not on each other. Um, and it's something that I've had to learn over these past six years with the, with the men in particular, how to deal with their egos, how to make sure that they understand that, okay, in the front of the room, it's me, and it's what I say. And if that person is bothering you, you don't go to that person, you come to me to, to work with us, because fighting in the studio is not something that we're going to, it's going to make any, make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I had a, I have a sense that that there's a pretty competitive environment in ballet. How do you, and, and, and is there a healthy competition that you try to foster, or is competition not part of it at all? Competition is a very important part of it. I think that when you're trying to do something that is so refined and so exacting as ballet, and that you've got to understand, you've got to create an environment in which everybody is trying to be the best person they can, that's the kind of competition that I want it to be, that you are creating the, 
when I do this role, I'm defining it. And when you're doing the same role, you're defining it in your way. But it's not that it's you're trying to do my way. You have to find that in yourself. It's also that it's a very hard art form. You have to create an atmosphere in the room where everyone is working as hard as they can. And that if there's somebody who's not working as hard as they can, that that doesn't become the poison that changes things. I feel like the company is in a good place right now, that we're coming to a place where people are actually um, challenging themselves and not measuring themselves against each other. And that is a struggle to keep that going. Part of that, on my part, is having conversations with dancers about how they're working. Part of it is how we cast ballets to make sure that you understand that you can get this if you work on it. You're being given something that everybody wants, so you've got to shine in it. What are you looking for when you hire a dancer? I'm looking for intelligence. I'm looking for malleability. I'm looking for awareness. I'm looking for high standards of technique, of course, but it's much more the person who is not taking for granted that they are at a level, but are very, very hungry to be at another level. Musicality, the ability to learn quickly is incredibly important. Our dancers are working 36 weeks this year. Um, We're on tour 17 of those weeks. We have five new ballets. We have four ballets that are coming back into rep. There's a tremendous amount of work that needs to get done and very little rehearsal time. So these people have got to be ready to step up and make this happen. And sometimes you see a dancer who is talented, beautiful, can't absorb, can't pick up quickly. You know, if you're in an audition and you're asking them to do, part of our audition is to do some repertoire. Our repertoire is classical and contemporary and neoclassical, and we we test them. And you see them being confronted with a kind of movement that they've never had to do before. How do they adapt to that? Is it impossible for them to learn quickly that the accent is on two, not on one? You know, those things, are those are telltale signs. And there have been beautiful dancers that I haven't been able to take because they can't do that. I don't have time. It's got to go very quickly. Absorb, become, take something, make it yours. How much uh, scouting and poaching is there? Actually, Dance Theater Problem is involved in an initiative around this. Ballet companies are across the country are deciding, oh, we need some black ballet dancers. We just need, we need them. Where are they? People call me up. I, I need some dancers for my company. Um, can because I, of optics? Like, is that, what you, is that what you feel is the reason? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's very much. We are in a point of time where uh, boards of directors and companies and, and companies across and, and cities across, across the country are going, we want to diversify our audiences and our audiences need to look up onto our stage and see that there are dancers of color, dancers like them up on, their, on the stage. So it is very much about optics. I would like it to be about aesthetics. I think that we'll get there. But right now, it is really much more that diversity is what everybody is talking about in every field. Yeah. So there's a big push to find dancers of color. Now, there isn't a big push yet to train dancers of color. And it takes 10 years to make a ballet dancer. It takes 10 years to make somebody who's ready to step onto that stage. And if you've decided 
two years ago or last year or even five years ago, my company needs to be more diverse, where are you going to find those dancers? So yes, so yes, there's poaching for sure, you know, and uh, I'm proud of the dancers who've moved on to other companies because they are actually carrying something forward and that's actually what we're making happen. But it also makes it just as difficult for me to create the A++ company that Dance Theatre of Harlem is because we are also nurturing dancers. But at this moment, there isn't a pipeline. And so that's our biggest challenge. Are you using the school for that? Absolutely. Oh, my God. I'm so excited about some young people in our school, not for this year, maybe for next year. And three, four years from now, some of them who are in five, oh, my God, it's going to be beautiful. So, yes, it's, it's, um, it's a constant building. But what if somebody else takes them? Right. <laughs> so how do you stop that from happening? Or do you actually say, I'm happy that the world wants these dancers? I'm happy that the world wants these dancers. Yeah. You know, Dance Theater of Harlem was never an all-black company. That's not the purpose of Dance Theatre of Harlem. The purpose of Dance Theatre of Harlem is to make people see ballet in a new way. Um, We have been diverse ourselves from the beginning, and we are diverse now. So we bring people in who can promote our image. So if young people grow up in the Dance Theatre of Harlem school and move on to companies around the country, around the world, this is our purpose because we're trying to train dancers who can make a difference, make a difference for us, make a difference for other people. So I was reading an old interview. This is from like the 1980s. And someone said about you, Virginia Johnson has been a principal ever since the company evolved, but she's never been a diva. (laughs) (laughs) Is that idea of like the sort of prima ballerina as diva a myth or is that a real kind of person that travels through the ballet world? And how do you how do you manage that personality? Um, I think that there are divas in the ballet world, for sure. And I think that there's a mystique to the diva that is part of the antique mystique of ballet. And I don't think that that's necessarily anything that has anything to do with good, beautiful, exquisite dancing. Um, There aren't any divas at Dance Theatre of Harlem because that's not what it's about. Um, And people who have been diva-ish have been... Goodbye. (sighs) I don't think it's necessary for you to be demanding and ego-driven to do good work. I don't think that mystique of, of uh, the person who can't function is the best artist. <laughs> I just don't, I don't believe that there's any truth to that. Yeah. We were talking a bit about representation in terms of race in ballet, but I was surprised to learn when I was doing a little bit of reading that actually it's, it's not that common for a woman to be an artistic director of a company. Well, it it is it hasn't been that common for a woman to be an artistic director. But now that we are in almost 2019, the number of women artistic directors is increasing since I started. I think there are maybe four more than when I first started. Uh, ballet was a man's world, very much. Uh, the artistic director, the choreographer, the ballet master, ballet master. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was a universe of the women were the front, were, were the instruments. That, they were what, what you saw in ballet, but it was the men who were, was, were making it happen. Um, and that is changing. That's definitely on its way out. Uh, right now, the big push is for female choreographers. 
And that's another transgression because before the women were the dancers and the men were the choreographers. But there is a Dance Theater of Harlem has a, an initiative called Women Who Move Us, which is about developing female choreographers whose first language is classical ballet. So the Dance Theater of Harlem has had only two artistic directors, its founding artistic director and you. How much of sort of the history and the kind of mantle being passed from the founder to you, how much of that is constraining or pressure and how much of that is, is grounding? I would say that it's incredibly grounding to have the um, to be to follow in Arthur Mitchell's footsteps to be so close to his leadership. Um, I learned so much from him. Uh, he's the person who actually taught me to look deeper and broader and wider um, at this art form of classical ballet. To not assume that it was the way that people were telling me that it was, uh, and he also created a, a very clear culture of excellence that I think has been, it has been my benefit to have the job of moving forward. Um, I've never been an artistic director before. Sitting on this side of the, the, the studio instead of being the dancer, being the person in the front of the room, has all kinds of responsibilities and perspectives that I had no exposure to. And so being able to lean back on what Arthur Mitchell had established until I could figure out what it was that I wanted to do myself has been a great, great benefit. Though it is also constraining. Arthur Mitchell was very much an autocrat. Uh, and I am not trying to create that environment in the company. And, and making that change is, is something that is very tricky to negotiate. But I think that we're getting there. I think that we're finding that, that way to do it. In terms of vision, I think that keeping a ballet company uh, in business in America is incredibly, incredibly difficult. There are so many expectations of what ballet should be and how ballet should be presented that really need to be changed. But changing them is uh, a, an uphill battle. The expectation that art lives on the side of your life instead of in the center of your life is our biggest hazard. Um, I want people to need this art form. It's hard to need fairy tales. It's hard to need princes and swans. When you're speaking to a funder or you're speaking to a board member about uh, making something that is relevant in an unexpected way, you have to find a particular language that lets them let go of their expectation and understand that our job as artists is to do something that doesn't already exist. That's one of the things that I'm learning <laughs> as we move forward. It's very tricky. Uh, is the relationship to money, thinking about money, um, I don't know, all the time and your relationship to donors, is that the hardest part of the job? Um, I think that the hardest part of speaking about money uh, with donors and, and creating that necessity of funding Dance Theatre of Harlem is to get inside their heads to understand what would make it important to them to do that. I always feel like I'm talking about why it's important from my perspective, and I think that that is not the most successful way to do it. I've, I need to find the, the, the key that lets them understand how it would change them and the way they live and the world that they live in 
to support us. Because that's what I'm trying to do, but I haven't figured that that out yet. Uh, what would you say, what would your advice be to a young black girl who maybe is uh, living in a place where there are not very many people who look like her, whose body is changing a little bit. She's been taking ballet and she's uh, she loves it, but she's trying to figure out if this is a thing to keep doing or if she should, you know, turn elsewhere. I think that there's a lot too much emphasis put on needing to find somebody who looks like you right now. I think that you need to do this for yourself. You don't need the encouragement of somebody like me who's done this before. Because being an artist, I don't care what color you are or what shape you are, is hard. You have to love this thing more than anything else and understand that it might not happen. doesn't matter what color you are or what shape you are. That to have a career in dance is an incredibly lucky thing. The odds against it are enormous. So first, you have to be willing to commit yourself 100%, not cloister yourself, not create this as a place that I'll die if I don't, except you have to feel that way. So you have to get, get, find a sense of balance for yourself, but know that you are going to do this, and it's not because somebody said you could or somebody said you couldn't but because you see yourself in this. You have to expose yourself to as many opportunities as you can. That means if you're able to in the summertime, go far away from home and be in an environment that you're not used to so that you can understand a different perspective on on you and your work. That's really important. Um, Nowadays that we have this wonderful internet thing... (laughs) You have access to all kinds of information, all kinds of dancers, all kinds of people talking about dance, all kinds of people seeing dance, making dance happen. I think what I'm saying is very contradictory, that you've got to be both singular and incredibly open. I think as a young person, that's hard to do. Maybe my most important thing to say is you have to do the work. You have to do the work every single day no matter whether you feel like it or you don't feel like it, whether you think you're good or you don't think you're good, whether you think that it's going to happen or you don't think it, you have to just go in there and do the work every day. How do you get, or are you able to get a similar feeling of reward, I guess, out of your work now that you're not actually performing, but you're helping people to become dancers themselves? First, when I was a dancer, there was no satisfaction ever. (laughs) It was, it was, um, yeah, I still loved dancing, but it was a very, very frustrating career. I don't know why I did it for 28 years. (laughs) I really don't. Um, So only, only to think that maybe so that I could be here now, because there is something really satisfying. Not that I'm succeeding, but to create and just to watch the dancers grow, to watch the company become, to have it alive and on tour. It's not satisfaction because, oh, my God, it needs to be so much more than it is. But there's a sense of um, building that I never had before that is very exciting.
This was really, really fun. I'm so glad you came. Thank you so much, Virginia. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Allison. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Thanks so much to Virginia Johnson, and thank you all for listening. 